0: Coming to you on an afternoon again, Um, we pivoted for summer just because it worked better for schedules to do afternoon. And so it feels so strange to be not joining first thing in the morning, but of course, I'm still drinking coffee. (laughs) Ashley, okay, so we have a guest today and I want to introduce her in a second. She's my good friend. Well, I'll just tell you her name now, Ashley Wolf. But Ashley, guess what I'm drinking in my coffee cup right now? I'll tell you. It's the um, Highlander Grog that Amy Jo gave us. when. So we were together the other day and our other friend brought us coffee. And it's from Stoff's in German Village, which is like my favorite. Have you had your your coffee yet? Mm-hmm. It's really yeah. so good. Uh, so, so good.
1: She brought you a little
0: slice of your old home. She did. It was so sweet. She brought me like a little half bag of like coffee beans and I just freshly ground them up and made a made a cup before our podcast. Um anyway, I'm super pumped to um have our friend Ashley on. Lindsay and I always talk about how like someday we'll get a specialist on our podcast. But in the meantime, it's usually just Lindsay and I talking as non-specialists. But today we actually have a real specialist on and what a treat because you guys as you're about to find out Ashley is like way overqualified to be talking on this podcast so I'm super thankful to have her um she's the most she's the sweetest most humble person like she's shaking her head no right now when I say that um so but okay so Ashley thank you for being here can I give you a little like shout out with all your things all your qualifications sure. all your, <laughs> okay
2: you're, I already are
0: um, so, okay. Sorry. My daughter also has a goat in my face right now. Please take the goat outside. Okay. So Ashley, amazing. you guys, Ashley Wolf, she is a certified child life specialist and advanced grief recovery methods specialist with 16 years of experience. How are we old enough for 16 years? We're not, we're not. It's funny Anything. math. Okay.
1: Funny math. Um, but no, anyway, but she is 16 years. So our age is yeah. funny. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. Super qualified. Um, Ashley has worked in um, hospice settings with children families, and she wrote a book you guys called My Journey with the Wind, which we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Um, but it's all about grief for children. She is also um, has been an adjunct professor of therapeutic play at Central Washington University, and currently volunteers with a nonprofit called Let Grace In, that supports families who have experienced the death of a child through monthly therapeutic events and annual family retreats. She also has her own private practice. You guys, she lives in Hawaii and so she has this like beautiful home and has her own private practice there um, where I think she's hoping to host like retreats and do fun grief recovery things there. She has a husband and three awesomely adventurous boys and um, and likes to hike and keep plants alive and try to keep plants alive, which I'm sure you do a great job at. Not as good as you. Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, we're super pumped to have you. So, backstory we met Ash. I met Ashley through Beauty Counter, um, which is network marketing that Lindsay and I have talked about a million times on here. And I just think it's so important to highlight how. How many cool people we have met through, if, if you can't already tell, like every podcast guest that we have had on basically has been someone that we've met through network marketing because it just brings the coolest people together. Um, and Ashley lives in Hawaii, but has been spending this summer in Ohio. So we've actually got to hang out a handful of times with our kids and it's just been a real treat. Um, I She's headed back to Hawaii soon in a couple of days, but I two weeks two weeks girl <laughs> um but anyway we've had the pleasure of hanging out and i just thought it would be really cool to bring ashley on because we spoke about grief a couple weeks ago and um although that was not pertaining to children specifically in that episode there were children involved and i just think this is going to be a good resource for everyone who listens because ultimately unfortunately grief comes when you're least expecting it, and it can totally blindside you if you're not prepared with how to cope. So, mm-hmm. anyway, welcome Ashley. Yay! Thank Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, for sure.
2: You.
0: Um. Okay. So, super excited. You're going back in two weeks. I'm sure you're. I'm sure you've had a nice time here, but I'm sure you're also ready to go home.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's been a, just over six months that we've been here, so ready to be back in the routine. Do yeah. you have family yeah. here, Ashley? We do. And my father-in-law uh, died at the end of November. And so we came to actually help my mother-in-law during this time and just um, decided to stay. She needed some help with different things at her house. So we pulled the kids out of school and I've been homeschooling. I put my practice on pause um, wow. and it's just a family family pause time. And it's been really sweet. It's been um really wonderful in ways just to be together all of us and out of the routine of home but we're you know with three little boys I'm ready to be back home in routine you know how well they yeah. we do with that so it'll be good
1: oh uh, I love that that family
2: first motto yeah yeah it worked we we're really grateful that it could work for us I know there's a lot of families who would want to do that but wouldn't be able to with work and whatever so uh, grateful that's a- that we could have that cool I love that yeah
0: So to back way up, tell us exactly what is a child life specialist? Like, um, some of us, some, I hadn't, I actually had a friend in college who was a child life specialist or studied that, but I feel like that's probably not a super common thing that most people are even aware of that it exists. So tell us about it.
2: Yeah. So a lot of people have no idea what this job is. People, like you said, who even work in hospitals, but our, Our our educational background is in a field related to child development. And then we work primarily in medical settings and hospitals and clinics. And our job is to provide developmentally appropriate education to children and their families, and then help come alongside of families and support them through things like procedures or a new diagnosis, illness, long hospitalization. So our role is to come in and provide kind of that normalization that emotional support and coping, um, with like coping plans and procedure
0: plans and things like that. Okay. And so is that something that like you automatically send or that you have to be requested or? Yeah. So it's um... depending on which, organization
2: you work for and if there are like for example in the state of Hawaii when I when I came back to I actually came to Ohio for my master's so I was working in Hawaii and then I came here for my master's when I left there were only five certified child life specialists in the state like positions total and then when I came here for my master's in Ohio and was working at nationwide children's hospital I think there were 27 or something and just in that one hospital so it kind of depends on where you are and um, what you need uh, whether um, there is a child life specialist that is available to you um, but the more you request them the more they'll show up at places yeah
0: and that's just like so mind-blowing to me because you know I think it's kind of a trendy thing right now to talk about in a good way not in a bad way but you hear a lot about, oh, that must be childhood trauma or Mm -hmm. discovering your childhood traumas. And I think there is so much childhood trauma in varying degrees. Um, And so I'm super pumped to chat with you today. And I'm super pumped um, for your field of work to continue to grow and become more popular. And you have an insanely important job. So um, anyway, you... Did a lot of grief work how did that kind of come about for you
2: yeah so
0: when I was looking
2: when I was drawn initially drawn to the field of child life because I learned um I learned about it actually in college I was taking a medical sociology class and learned about child life went up to my professor, who was my advisor, and was like, I need to do this, this job. Um, So he actually really helped me, got me plugged in at Seattle Children's Hospital, uh, volunteering, and then that's where I was able to do my internship and get hired right after. And what I realized in learning about child life was that there was this whole population of really vulnerable people, kids, in Mm -hmm. a system, hospitals, that isn't really... designed to support them in a very good way. Right. Um, I was given the example of like an adult going into the emergency room and having all these procedures and things have start happening to them, but no one ever telling them what they were doing or why they were doing it. And like how many adults would be okay with that? Like not many, yeah. but that happens every day to children in medical, uh, you know, um, offices or hospitals all, all the time. So I really had, um, like a passion to support these kids and I really enjoyed doing that in my job as a child life specialist in hospital and clinical settings Um, and then grief specifically my very first patient during my internship that was like my, um, we had to have like a case study, if you will, and so I asked a patient who was coming in for a new diagnosis of um, leukemia, if he would be my, if I could use him as my case study. And um, we had a really good rapport. I did diagnosis teaching with him, helped him with his port placement and the beginning of his treatment. And then um, it came time to where in, as part of his treatment, he needed a blood transfusion, but he was Jehovah's witness and didn't believe that he could have a blood transfusion. So he ended up dying because of refusing to have a blood transfusion in his family, supporting that decision. Um, and it was really hard for me as a brand new baby intern to be not only confronted with the death of a patient and family that I had grown really close to, but to also have it be this really complicated and unusual case, I guess, that had different emotional pulls on all of the staff, really. It was really hard for the every staff involved with this family. Um, at that time at Seattle Children's, I was working closely with the palliative care team, and they were this awesome team of multidisciplinary a team. So there was a physician, nurse, social worker, people of different professions, but they were all on the same team. They all had the same job. And that was to facilitate these family meetings and these discussions and the way that they just created such a calm environment for these meetings and spoke so clearly, so matter-of-factly um, about options and changes in care and changes in hopes and goals of care, um, you know, as the as the progression of the illness or disease was changing. So the goal was no longer life-saving, but it became comfort. The way that they kind of helped guide families through this process, I was just amazed and in awe of them from very early on in my field, um, in my professional career, I guess. So I, I instantly felt drawn to like, be part of that team and learn from them. I also, when I was working with families at end of life, just felt this really calm presence, like in myself, I felt really calm. I felt like the whole world stood still and I just felt really connected to purpose. And, um, it's when I felt most human in my job, I guess, you know, like working in hospitals, you're supposed to have like this very clinical separation of like, <laughs> you know, staff versus patient. And at end mm-hmm. of life, it's just, it's just humans, like trying to cope and get through. That's such a hard time. And I don't know, I just felt really drawn to that space. So that has kind of guided and led me through different career opportunities to work with um, in hospice and community. Um, and then now in private practice too. Wow. So cool. that's I beautiful.
0: love that. You know, that takes, I mean, that's a, that takes a very, anyone working with end of life, especially children. I mean, that is just, that's not something that everyone welcomes or could do, you know? Well, even
2: professionals too. Like, and when I was working in hospice, um, there was a social worker once in like our rounds who was going over the family that their patient was, you know, a 45 year old woman or, and they had. Um, three kids um, but the kids were too young to understand so they didn't need support and then she kept going and I was like wait sorry can I ask <laughs> how old are the kids and they're like oh they're like seven, five, Oh my gosh and I'm like oh could I talk with you after like mm, <laughs> they really yeah. know could and then came come to find out like the parents didn't even want them to know that the par- that mom was sick here oh. she was signing on to hospice and had maybe like two weeks left to live and just like that, a social worker who is supposed to be like trained in this type of work, you know, was like, "Oh no, they don't need to know that their moms couldn't die." Oh my like,
0: gosh! Oh, you're you're a legitimate angel, angel. <laughs>
2: like <you're> an angel. <laughs> they need to know. They need to know. Yeah, and oh, that, there's a so way that hard. we can tell them that. Is we're such like this death scared society. Like our culture is so afraid of death and so afraid to talk about it and to talk about grief and especially with our kids. So we use these like euphemisms to like, make it sound more gentle, like they passed away or, you know, they're in a better place. And these things that we don't realize can actually be really harmful to kids um, and, they're not, and their ability to understand or not understand what that means. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think it is just a cultural thing. Like you know, and we kind of talked about this um, with Lindsay's friend who was on and we we spoke about grief, like, after something really tragic happens, a lot of times people don't know what to say. So they just say nothing. And this Mm -hmm. is kind of that, right? They were just going to say nothing to these kids. Right. And it wasn't out of malice. It's just our culture doesn't like you said it, we don't, we don't accept death almost or we don't right. embrace it at all and so these children and adults are left just like you said we think we're doing them a favor but we're actually doing them a, a huge disservice mm-hmm. um and so wow yeah I mean hopefully we can uh you know shift that culturally over time with more awareness to it and your book probably brought a ton of awareness to this issue, right? Tell us about your book and like, what was the process like? And I'm sure you've heard from so many people afterwards, like what a cool thing that you got to do writing that book. Tell us about it.
2: Yeah. So during COVID actually, I was posting videos. Like I realized at home, my husband and I were doing a lot of things to help our kids and manage the chaos of like all being home all of a sudden and I was using a lot of child lifey stuff so I started like posting these videos on social like how to help your family how to be all together at home how to help your kids understand what's going on how to whatever and um my friend Gabby saw them and she her son died um and she started and her and her family started a nonprofit organization to support other families who have experienced the death of a child so their nonprofit is called Let Grace In and it's all volunteer run and they support families with, I think you mentioned it all, monthly family events. And so anyway, she she was like, she reached out to me after seeing one of my videos and she said, would you like to join our team? um as a child life specialist helping to support these siblings and families and I was like yes I would love to so I worked on this team with this team for a while and we had a family approach our team and ask if someone on our team would be willing to write a children's book because her best friend was an editor and was gonna like donate her time and volunteer to like help us write this book um she was on the wait list she tried to find a play therapist for her daughter who um was experiencing grief and there was like an eight month wait list for a play therapist. So she was hoping this resource could be like an interactive, um, therapeutic tool that she could use for her daughter with her daughter. Two weeks before this call, I had just written like in a, in a journal, like I want to write a children's book. So when, when our, um, when Gabby approached the team and was like, is anyone interested in writing this? I was like, oh, me, I would love to. (laughs) Especially with my background in like talking with kids and having that developmentally appropriate language background and this, you know this work. So I um, got to work with the luck racing team. So there's an art therapist that I work with um, a lot. And we actually work together at hospice too. And so she's on the luck racing team. So she and I collaborated a lot and we decided to start with our activity pages in the back. So when I would see families in hospice, I would go through these first five um, sessions. I would had like kind of planned activities for each one that could go different ways depending on the situation, but typically this is the progression I would use. Um, and so we decided to start there with those activities, those therapeutic activities. And then I just wrote the story kind of to weave around those. So the story is like an introduction, um, an explanation. It's to kind of like activate that grief energy and um, provide a story that the reader can either relate with or have some difference about. And then in the end, in the activity pages in the back, it's an explanation or a definition of what grief is, And then different pages to help them be able to identify their own personal experiences of grief, and then to express how that has made them feel, and then to prepare for kind of like what you said, that unexpected, those like unexpected grief waves that can come up. So it's just moving through like kind of what I would do in my practice, but it's in book form so that anyone can do it. A parent can walk their child through it. A teacher can walk their student through it or their classroom through it. Um, Yeah. So what age position. were you
1: gearing this towards? Like any any child like under eighteen? Yeah.
2: It kind of depends on who is working with the child okay. um like how young you could do it like you the story is a little bit long for the attention span of like under 4 okay. um so i would definitely kind of gauge it or like when i'm reading stories to my kids i have a 3 a 5 and 7 year old sometimes i'll skip some pages or i'll make my own kind of words to it um or do like a little bit of it at a time so but i really think that it's a book that can span a lot of different ages or developmental stages and i even have had a lot of feedback from adults who experienced a death of someone that they loved and they read it and it was really touching and they did the activities as well. So I think it can also be for adults too um, because there's a quote that says that um, death or grief makes children of us all. And mm-hmm. so sometimes that really simplistic language is really helpful to kind of like, you know, you can see these big grief books on the bookshelf and you're like, in grief, that's not what I want to reach for. No. Like that doesn't feel good to me to like read all this, words
1: yeah (laughs) like I can't comprehend it right right now now. yeah that makes sense I like that and um there's something about doing workbooks I homeschooled for a a bit too Mm -hmm. and I feel like just doing art with my kids or workbook things there's something very therapeutic about that as adults that I think we maybe lost touch of a little bit Mm -hmm. some of us Mm -hmm. I did and Mm -hmm. um
2: I really like that I've worked with families before with like multiple siblings and I I love having this book because I can like use it as my own, like (laughs) my own workbook when I go into families' homes or when they come see me and, or virtually too, that each sibling gets their own book and they can write their own things inside. So even though maybe they have the same shared losses, they'll have different experiences or different reactions or different, you know, expressions of their grief. And it's pretty cool to like validate that and have them have like their own their own grief I have my own grief you know
0: Mm -hmm. yeah for sure um okay I have two questions what is a play therapist you spoke of a play therapist a few minutes moments ago
2: yeah there are special counselors and therapists who have like a play therapy license or a degree that allows them to operate therapy in a way
0: that uses different um play modalities cool so cool it is very cool when we were speaking about having you on this podcast, you said something to me that was so cool and something I had never heard before. And I'm probably going to butcher it. So you should say it. You should say it, but I'll prompt you. It was, um, you said something about the way that children grieve like developmentally is so much different than adults grieve. And they actually grieve through each stage of Development is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: So kids, kids, kids experience grief very differently than adults do, um, particularly around death, because we know that grief can we can experience grief from any significant change. So, moving, changing schools, starting school, um, separation, divorce, death. But specifically around death, um, children can re-grieve at each developmental stage. Is there a concept of death? Expands, and they come to understand the permanence of death, or the significance of that relationship as they get older. And they see, you know, father-daughter relationships, and they recognize the significance of that as they become older and are a daughter missing their father or whatever it may be. Um, so they, at each developmental stage, re-grieve, and this can be really surprising to parents who, at five years old, explain that their grandfather died and that, you know, whatever their beliefs are around death. Happened, like they went to heaven, or they're in the ground, or whatever they explain, and then maybe like in a couple of years, they their that child's understanding of death expands further, and they might come with the to the parent with questions that catch them off guard, and they'll think like we've already talked about this. Oh no, are they, you know, are they okay? And it's actually very normal for them to just be like understanding it more fully in that way, if that makes sense. So with that understanding comes all their that emotion. You know, my friend at school is going to his grandpa's house for for 4th of July or whatever. And I don't have a grandpa to go to. So they begin to experience grief, even though it was years ago, they begin to experience it at that age or that developmental stage, if that makes sense. Um, But also another thing that is different from children to adults is that children cannot exist in prolonged mourning like adults can. They don't have the tolerance for that. So they can't sit in a sad funeral service for hours and then go to a house where they're supposed to be quiet and still and greet guests for more hours. Like they don't have that bandwidth to be able to do that energetically, emotionally. Um, so it's just important for all of us adults to know that children need to play, that play is the work of kids with and without grief, in and without circumstance. Um, sometimes parents will tell me that they're worried their child like doesn't get it or doesn't understand how significant it is or important it is. And that may be the case. Maybe things weren't well explained to them, but they might have some misconceptions that they need cleared up so they're acting out kind of because of that or out of fear or out of whatever but for the most part it's because kids just need to be kids and given the opportunity to play they will <laughs> and that's how they'll like process a lot of their stuff um that because- makes so much sense like when you
1: say i mean it makes so much sense i think it would be it's like knowing these things before grief hits like that mm-hmm. would be helpful but i think sometimes it hits and then you see how things pan out and you're like, is this normal? What's happening? Yeah, right. um, So I really appreciate you sharing that because I, I do wonder about children or like, um, gosh, my grandpa, for instance, like they did go to that funeral and it really was like, I was like, Oh, should I, I mean, they were little when that happened and they were just like, didn't they got it, but like, we're just in a different energy state. And honestly, I liked it because I was like, this is, brings like a element of joy that was grandpa was super old so he lived a long life so that was like both happy and sad you know it was easier I'm not saying that's every situation but um it is interesting to me about learning about how kids are wired differently and how they grieve differently
2: there's something so, I mean, and I think that's too, like adults, we want that break. Like that's why sometimes in in, the, in like an obituary or when they're, share, when they're up speaking, someone will say like a joke and everyone laughs and it feels so good to yeah. like break the sadness with the laugh, you know, that like, that just yeah. feels good. And that's how kids, that's what kids need too. Um, I think too, sometimes we expect children to be able to tell us how they feel or what they are thinking or what they understand and what they don't understand. And children aren't depending on how old are their developmental stage, they're not able to articulate words to us to communicate that. And that can be really frustrating and hard um, to navigate as parents, caregivers, um, you know, supporting adults. So that's something that's different between children and adults in their grief. Um, but and and I I think too, like just the best way to work with children in grief or to be with them is just to allow them to have permission to feel and express. And I think adults need that too, right? Like we all need that permission to just like be in your feels and express what you want to express, reach out for support as you need to. Um, But yeah, like for caregivers to just follow their lead and not make them feel like they have to fit into a certain box, like that they should be crying or that they should be feeling that they should be saying, like, I miss them so much all the time, or um if they if you start to do an activity with them and they like jump up and want to run off to the next thing, don't feel like they have to like stay and complete that activity. We were talking about your feelings. You need to finish this feeling activity, like right and they want to just play now, you know, so not being like surprised when they need to like jump out of that out of that space,
0: yeah, I always think, um one quick thing, and then we'll take a quick break. But this is not grief related, but it is just, telling of the way that children process I when I would pick Ruby up from preschool immediately I would be like how was your day um tell me all about it what did you learn what did you eat like I would bombard her with like five questions boom 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 that I was so excited to know about like genuinely and she would just clam like she would tell me nothing for hours and I would I remember at first being so like caught off guard by that and upset like is is she not liking her school? Is something wrong there? Is it not stimulating enough for her? Like, and then, you know, usually we would just not talk about it. And then by dinner time, she would slowly start to open up and share little tidbits with me about her day on her own time. Probably, and maybe you can speak to this, like after she started to process it herself. Like she needed time to eat. I don't know. But but I just From that, I mean, it makes so much sense what you're saying. And just that silly example of just like, it takes children time and, and different pace than adults to process. And she could not spout out her day to me right when I picked her up, like, like an adult. We have
2: different significance. Like we, we, we put different significance on things as adults and kids do like kids are so in the moment that they're not trying to capture or remember each moment. They're just living it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I love that. Okay, let's take a quick break and then we'll pop back on and I have some more questions to ask you. Okay. Okay, we back. Um, so yeah, this is so helpful and insightful. I feel like I could ask you a million questions and go on and on. Like I want to give you every um parenting struggle that I have, and you can <laughs> walk me through it. But let's focus on grief for today. Um and Why don't you, could you, I mean, I know this is probably difficult because every scenario is so individualized and there are so many circumstances you can't, there's no textbook way of handling each situation, right? Um, But could you walk us through like a couple of scenarios? Like if I gave you a random example. um, So let's just say um, a sibling- has a chronically ill other sibling mm-hmm. like um what are ways that you might be able to help that family or that child of uh, the sibling of the chronically ill sibling or um sure well I'll just kind of
2: speak to kind of what that sibling's needs might be or yeah that can that we would help be perfect. them regardless of who because I really think like even when I'd come alongside of families in the hospital, I would always be like, my job is to work myself out of a job and to like help you be an independent coping unit, you know, because fam- parents and caregivers, they're the experts of their kids. I really believe that. Um, so if in the case of a sibling where another sibling has a chronic illness, um, there's a lot of things that I can think of. Um, I think one of the biggest thing is to help them feel seen help their feelings and their emotions be seen and witnessed and held with value um, and honored. So, And that can be really hard for caregivers and parents to do, to be able to provide that space for them. So sometimes I suggest that there be another family member or another safe adult that that person can connect with, that that child can connect with to be like their person, whether it's they get to go do fun things with that person, go see a movie or go, you know, whatever that child is interested in it, have it be a person that can give them just a break and do some fun one-on-one things with them. And that trust can develop and they can turn into this listening ear for them. Um, I also think sometimes when a child becomes sick or has a chronic illness, they're just the schedule looks so full of things for the sick child that it's hard for parents. Parents often feel like guilty that they don't have the same amount of like time and energy that they can give to all their children. And I would say that short, full attention moments are key in this case. That short, those short moments where their full attention is to that sibling and to what they need, what they have to say, what they wanna do, you've got me right now It doesn't matter for how long maybe it's only for 15 minutes but you have my full attention my phone is down it's turned off and it's you right now that i'm connecting with maybe we're on a drive or whatever it is those those short moments can really be significant and can really add up and can kind of help that that parental burden that they feel um Also, another suggestion that I've learned just in working with families along the way is that keeping as much the same as possible is so, so valuable for that sibling. So keeping as much routine the same um, when they get picked up from school, by whom, (laughs) Um, what rules there are, you know, for example, if, if you're not allowed to watch TV until your homework is finished, and then now all of a sudden your sister's sick and you can watch TV whenever you want, and all the rules are going away, then something must be really bad right? Like that can cause more fear and okay. less certainty and less like everything's just up in the air, as opposed to like keeping to a structure, keeping routine, keeping those boundaries that were there before that provides a sense of safety. They know how to operate in the family system. They're not feeling like they need to become the parent role of like keeping things together. Um, yeah. like not everything is crumbling. Um, I think that's sometimes- so
0: important to note because I feel like as a parent, if you do carry some guilt that you're not able to give enough time or whatever, it might be tempting to allow the rules to slip away totally. out of guilt. Yes. Like, you're like, All the yes. like every day is a yes day because you right. feel guilty that you can't right. give them the time that you wish you could. Right. And um, um, so that's a really, I think that's so important um, to reiterate that. It,
2: yeah. And it becomes this team, like if there's like this team mentality around it, like every, One of us in this family is a member of this team and you have a valuable role and giving them valuable roles to do and to complete like things that are actually take some responsibility that's appropriate for their age and development um, and giving them the opportunity to do something with the in and amidst the changes that can help. I think also a full commitment to complete honesty is really important because a child's imagination, depending on how old they are, but even into adolescence, like who can Google, like adolescents can Google things wow. and the other kids just have this imagination. They're like, I don't know if I'll ever see my sibling again because they've been in the hospital for two days, you know? So it's just this commitment to full honesty and transparency that like, we will tell you the things even if they're hard things. We will find a way to tell them to you in a way that feels that is appropriate and that feels safe, but we will not like keep things from you that you will know if things change, you will know if they're going to get more sick or if they're getting better, you know, like those types of things. I think those have been, um, I don't know, things that I feel grateful to have learned from families that I've worked with.
1: Yeah. That last one almost just makes me want to cry.
0: Like I'm like, Mm -hmm. "Mm -hmm." yeah, I think, I think um, our culture treats children like they're dumb sometimes or that they can't process. And again, I don't think it comes from a place of malice. I just think it's a cultural thing. Like we don't value the cognitive levels of our children are actually way higher than we give them credit for. Even as infants, you know, like the way that, and this is something I know I talk about Janet Lansbury all the time on this podcast, but I love her. And she always says, like, you talk to your children the same way you would talk to your ch- Spouse, like you you give them that much respect Mm -hmm. and of course Mm -hmm. cognitively you have to like change you know what how you're saying things but you don't say use your words to a child because you wouldn't say use your words to your spouse right um and that's not respectful to your child to to Mm -hmm. speak to them that way they can handle appropriately for you to say I'd like you to tell me this, that, and that, just like you would to your husband. Well, um, and they probably
2: already know what's going on. Like in that case with those three siblings that I worked with at hospice, mom died a week after I started working with them. And the son even knew her, their oldest son even knew the full name of her diagnosis. <laughs> and they didn't yeah. even think that they knew she had, they had cancer, she had cancer. So they know they're so, like they're biologically wired to know our emotions so well. Like that is like, that's their, their language. <laughs> yeah. yeah, So but they know how to tap in and understand that.
1: Yeah. And I think some of it might, I mean, just, I'm just thinking about myself. Like some of it probably comes out of like wanting to protect them, mm-hmm. but like sure, with that scenario, the aftermath was whether you told them or didn't tell them, they still have to walk through that. <sighs> so it's kind of like, we didn't really protect them from anything.
2: Right. No, right. After, like, Within, without... Yeah. Without giving them the opportunity to say goodbye.
1: Yeah. And you know? I'm not shaming because seriously, right. like totally. I think when you're in those situations, that's why totally. your message is important. Cause I think people need to know, because when you're in crisis, like you're not thinking about like, well, right. this would be really beneficial for my, you're
2: not like, you're just like, yeah. To- and who yeah. knew that there were specialists who actually do this?
0: Like, right well it is, is funny because when I worked for children
1: program. like um I worked at children's for a short stint in the foundation and so we worked very closely with families and so um I did yeah. work with some child life specialists because we would do certain things with children and um yeah it was a very special role you play a very special role yeah. I would cry all day I think <laughs> <laughs> were those but, like things. just there because were those I'm emotional you know what I'm saying not yeah. because it's all
2: like sad all the time but just it's like it's it's emotional there's like a five-year burnout rate like it's really it's a really hard job emotionally and it's not one that's really um I mean if you work with them and see the work that we do like you value it and you're like oh that's important but on a grand scheme like it's not something that I don't know organizations necessarily prioritize Mm -hmm. because we're not we're not a billable entity so you can't bill insurance so they're just things kind of come in the way so it's a hard job. That doesn't feel like we get a lot of like, not, not that recognition is what we need, but it's just like, it's hard every single day when people are like, what is, what do you to do? understand <laughs> what
1: your role is? Well, yeah. when you did that specific example of siblings with like, how do, how they, do they deal? Um, I worked on a marathon campaign where we had like mile champions. So like people mm-hmm. were representing a mile. So somebody would get to share their story. And we, I mean, we talked about that all the time. It's like, then that child, even though they're going through something really terrible, almost has like a celebrity type, like they're getting a lot of attention and things like that. And Mm -hmm. we would have to figure out like, okay, what, how many siblings do they have? What can we do for their siblings too? And so that was a conversation that we were brought into a lot of, um, you know, how to make sure that we're, we're speaking to every member of the family and making them all feel valued. And Mm -hmm. that's a hard one.
0: Yeah. Yeah that's great to consider all of that that's yeah that is hard um okay another scenario which is probably much more common than Mm -hmm. our previous one um let's chat for a second about children and divorce and like split Mm -hmm. custody and all of a sudden you're at mom's house half the time and dad's house half the time or or schedules change and rules are different at each parent's house like um I can think of a couple of friends off right off the top of my head who are dealing with that or have dealt with that before. And, um, yeah, what you, what you got for us for that, like, well, like anything, it's unique to, there's so many things that
2: are unique to this, each situation, but there are a ton of books. One of the fancy words I like to use is bibliotherapy, (laughs) just using books for therapeutic purposes, there's lots of books online that that talk about divorce and separation. And so I would encourage a family to resource up and get all those books
0: <laughs> from the library. Like, do you mean children's um, books?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of children's okay. books. Yeah. Um, a kids book about divorce. I really like that one. Simple, concrete explanations of things. Um, the title the, again. What was yeah, it? Yeah, a kid's book about divorce. Okay, thank you. There's like a whole series called a kid's book about whatever. There's even one of kids book about death. That's really good written by a child life specialist.
1: Um,
2: that's a great one, but there's another book called the list of things that will not change. And while I've never read that book, I loved the concept of that, of creating a list of things that will not change. Um, and also I, I loved it. And then I was like, ooh, but what if those things do change? <laughs> and then it's on the list. So anyway, yeah. but I just like the concept of it. Two homes. Why can't we live together? There's just a lot of different books you can look online and see. But I think some of the main themes with this to talk about with kids is that that they understand that it's not their fault. Because I think so many children of divorced or separated parents or caregivers feel like they had something to do with it, that it was some, that there was this one fight that they had with their parents and whatever. So I think that that's something that needs to be like articulated over and over and over and over again, probably can't be said enough. Um, The other thing is differentiating types of love. So one way that I've heard it explained to kids is that my love for you, my child is green it always goes. It stays green. My love for romantic partners who I loved, whether it was your other parent or whoever that can turn red, that type of red, can, that, that type of love can stop. It's a type of love that is a red light love. So there are these two types of love, but yours will always stay green. And however you want to talk about it, depending on how old That's they cool. are, their ages, yeah. but just differentiating the types of love, um, is really important to, um, to add to that conversation. Um, I also want to bring up that book that I mentioned to you, Christy, The Invisible String. So again, this has to be talked about after the, the connected love The differentiation of love because the idea of this book is that no matter where you are in the world, if your heart loves another heart you will be connected. And even if that person has died, you still have that love connecting you to them. So there's this invisible string that ties us to that person so when we don't see them feel them that you're still connected in your love to each other. So, this is a book that you can um, easily make into an activity by making like a friendship bracelet or a keychain or some kind of item that connects you as your invisible string. So, I'm planning to actually read this with my son who's starting kindergarten when we go home. Um, and we're going to create some kind of backpack keychain or something to just remember um, our invisible string. Um, again, with the um, like in the sibling experience. Uh, scenario right before permission to feel and express so i think t- like like the other scenario parents have their own stuff going on and a divorce or separation is so hard that's goes without saying so recognizing that their own emotional experience is going to be completely different from their child's experience and allowing and validating their child's experience for whatever it is whether it means that they're really frustrated and angry or they're mad or they're sad like those experiences can exist separate from your own experiences so like even though like you feel relieved maybe (laughs) they can feel mad and sad and angry and so being able to not try to make them feel your relief or not take on their mad and sad you know like it can exist separately and you can still be supporting them without that that same experience um and again, keeping rules and boundaries and routine as much the same as possible that helps with any transition um, and change. Um, giving them permission to do um, mad and angry activities. So, like energy, feelings are like energy, right? And it move. It's in our body. Like our mad and our sad and our happy. Those all things we feel them in our body. There's not like a bad feeling. And we talk. I talk about this in my book. Like. Uh, feelings are like colors, you can have a favorite color, but that doesn't mean that other colors are bad colors. So I can have a favorite feeling, like I really love to feel like euphoric and happy, but like that doesn't mean that feeling sad or mad is like a bad bad feeling, right? It's just a feeling. But some things feel good to do when we're feeling that way, like not to get rid of the sad and mad, but it just feels good. And then sometimes it does kind of alleviate the heaviness of that feeling. Is this making sense? But like, so for example, um, when working with teenagers with grief, or especially around di- divorce and separation, um, you can do something called like plate smashing, where you have like a whole plate, and you can like write things down. Um, like, for example, what if it would to be around separation and divorce, you could write down what was happening, like mom and dad are getting divorced, or, and then you smash the plate. And you can do it in a way that's, like really big and poof, or you can do it in a more controlled way in a ziplock bag with like a hammer <laughs> or something like that and then you can glue it together and this is the process of kintsugi it's a japanese process of like Break something shatters and then you paint you put it back with gold glue, um or, or gold paint and it like reattaches or you know like you reassemble it and it's the idea of making something new and beautiful from something that has shattered. So this is a really nice activity to do with adolescents, especially or older kids around separation from um from divorce or yeah separation. <laughs>
0: I don't know. I think. love that. Yeah. That's, there's so many different I, I want to do that for just my bad days. Like, I want to smash yeah. a plate and glue it back together. That sounds right. so therapeutic. Yeah.
2: With young um, kids, we'll do like, they're, like. I mean, what feels good when you're mad? Like, throwing something. Usually, like, your big muscle energy stuff feels good for some Like yeah. for some people. Um, yeah, like, toilet paper bowling. <laughs> just throw things into the world. Just things that can be, like,
0: I don't know, silly, but also...
2: Yeah, release. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I love that, and I think you know, like, knock on wood, and praise God, we've never had any big grief stuff go on over here that we've dealt with with Ruby. But just in the little things, like moving homes, or um, yeah. you know, not not going to school anymore, or starting school. Like, those are the moments when I notice that Ruby tests the boundaries even more. And mm-hmm. from what I understand. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I could very well be wrong. But that is just her making sure that she is still, that someone is still in control of her. Like she wants to make sure that, that someone's got her back and that she's still in a safe environment where she doesn't have to be in charge or, you know, that she's being guided still. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. What is known is what feels safe. So when what is known starts to change, that safety starts to change too. That feeling of safety starts to change.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, can I ask you a specific question for one of my kids? Yeah. Okay, so we had a lab, my husband and I got a lab right after we got married. And so this lab um, is like a chocolate lab made it to almost 14 years old. And we had to put him down last summer. Mm-hmm. And it was sad. Like all the kids, it's kind of like terrible. Like we got it. And then by the time all the kids got attached, he naturally, you know, they don't live forever. But um, so we had to put him down. But my seven-year-old who was six at the time specifically had a very, very, very hard time. Like I'm telling you to this day, sometimes I'll still s- start crying about it. Mm-hmm. Um, is that
2: normal yes (laughs) okay (laughs) a lot of times pet loss is there is like a child's first experience with death so it is it's a it's a huge thing it's a huge thing to have this loving presence in your life that is brings joy and brings you know normalcy there's routine there there's lots of things that a pet fills in our life snuggles unconditional love Mm -hmm. all of that there's so much that like if you think about like our emotional cup through the day of like like any kind of loving happy fun thing fills that cup pets fill that up for us so much so when that's not there think about all the things that are not being filled in that cup for for all for every family member involved um so yes, that is very normal. And I think a lot of times pet loss doesn't get a lot of attention because it does seem um, the grief recovery method that you mentioned that I do have my training in, they um, they talk about pet loss as being such a significant loss that's very often overlooked in kind of the grief community or, but um, but yeah, it is really significant.
1: Yeah, I when you mentioned your book, I think I might order it for him. And we've talked and like moved through a lot mm-hmm. of it, but it's like, so tender still. and I'm like, yeah. oh my gosh, and we did get a new dog, and I know that I wasn't trying to replace yeah. the old dog, but yeah, I just think it really marked him, you know, yeah. at whatever yeah. age he was and just it was hard, and it still is hard for us to kind of work through. And I um and I like sit with them with it, but I'm sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, this feels way heavier." I guess I just don't want my kids to be sad.
2: <laughs> right. No, we don't. Like, we want to protect oh, them from it. it. Yeah. Like I'm like yeah. oh.
1: But um
2: Yeah. It's yeah, it's
1: it's harder than it's harder than I anticipated.
2: Yeah. I think one one of the things too you said about like getting the book it to be able because you said you like to do workbooks and things. Mm-hmm. So working through some of the activities pages might be really helpful to like normalize his experience validate his experience like you're saying to anticipate some of the grief storms with him there's also like a guided med guided meditation in there guided imagery meditation that goes with the book so like helping him come into his body and like feel his feelings and express his feelings in a safe way where they're seen where they're validated and then also allowing him to participate in ritual this is something that's really important and kids do this on their own you know, with or without People watching, but um, when they're given permission or opportunity to create ritual, they'll do that in and, and a way that's unique to them and to their experience of loss. So maybe offering him a, a way, some kind of way to memorialize your dog, or to like, um, there's a there, one of the theories that I base my book around is called The Theory of Continued Bonds. And it's the theory of an invisible string that when, even when there is a death or a separation, that you are continually connected and bonded with that person. And it's continued bonds that support you emotionally through grief. And so if there's a way that you can help your son develop ritual of continued bond with your pet, with his pet, that can help to support him emotionally when he's feeling sad. So whatever those rituals might be. sometimes when, when we're working with siblings who have had a sibling die, we'll encourage them to like have the ritual of celebrating their birthday every year and letting the siblings kind of plan their birthday party, make their favorite cake, maybe pick out some pictures you want to have out and stories to tell or a favorite game that the child had. So whether it's like a ritual that you guys did with your dog before or something that was significant to him about, about his dog, like what felt um what did he feel with his dog that he feels like he doesn't have now and whatever those are but yeah some type some type of like connecting ritual or a memento Etsy has really great like dog memorial stuff so they have um, for a friend of mine who her dog died as well, I sent her, I sent Etsy, this this um, artist on Etsy, a picture of the dog and they painted the dog into like a portrait. So they have like really nice memento type things too. That's yeah. in childhood. We call that like the memory making. But being able to do some of those activities with him might help him.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, you're I welcome. And I'm like, I'm just going to ask
0: her.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you did. <laughs>
0: Oh, gosh. Ashley, what are your thoughts around like children going to a memorial service or a funeral or a visitation? I have lots of thoughts about that. (laughs) I think it's dependent
2: on each family. I think that like I said before caregivers are the experts of their child so whether it's parent guardian like you know your child the best you know what type of environment they can tolerate and what type they can't. So I don't think they should be forced to go if they don't want to go Is a big thing. Um, but I do think that they can be well prepared and feel emotionally safe going to it even if they feel nervous about it um so I would say that preparation is key like preparing them for what to expect. Is there going to be a viewing is there not? Do they have a choice of if they're gonna go or do they not have a choice because there might be reasons why they might not have a choice. but if they, don't want to go and you they have to go, um, my option then would be that they get to choose certain things. Like they can choose what they participate in. They can choose what they bring. I encourage families to prepare like a, a go bag of like snacks, activities, distractions, um, iPads, whatever, headphones, whatever, if they need to like be in their own little world, in their own little corner to get a break, stuff to draw on quietly, um, whatever works for the family. I encourage them to kind of have that and ahead of time and prepared. I also encourage families to find a buddy system. So like if it is a close family member and as a parent, you're going to have to be talking to other people. I encourage them to make sure they have like a buddy, whether it's their best friend that's gonna be there or another adult that they can like have that you talk to ahead of time that says, hey, I'm gonna have to be doing this. Would you please watch, be with, allow them to walk outside, get some fresh air. So like having a plan for it, I think is important. Um, letting them know that there's going to be people crying and going to be people feeling sad and why, you know, um, so that they're prepared emotionally for what they're going to see. And you can, you know, also say, you might also feel sad and you might also cry and that's okay. It's also okay if you don't. This is something that we're doing to honor their life and to celebrate their life, to go tell the family that we feel sad with them or we we see their sadness and that we love that person or for whatever whatever words you want to use um, or that fit the scenario. Um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of times we don't think that kids can tolerate being in those situations and, and maybe they, maybe to a certain degree there, it's another thing that's built and made not with kids in mind, right. It's not necessarily a setting that's super comfortable for anyone to be in really, especially kids. Um, So I think just being prepared with education and then resources while you're there. And then amazing. after like, yeah, I think after two talking about it and being like, what were things that you saw? What were things like letting them just like recount it, whether that's through talking or through playing or through drawing, like I said before, like words aren't always the best thing, but if, giving them that opportunity if they do wanna talk about it or um, yeah, if they do wanna
0: play or act it out and things later on. Awesome. That
1: is very helpful
0: when, when my, I remember when my great grandma died, um, I went and I don't remember much, but I remember that I was given a, a clown, like stuffed animal as a gift, um, from my great grandmother. Like, Mm -hmm. um, I don't, and I don't know if my great, if it was actually from my great grandmother probably was not, but it was, but it was something that my, someone in my family did and said like, this is for you from her, Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I remember <laughs> that it made me feel comforted. Like, oh, good. I don't know. So yeah. I, I don't know if like, that's an appropriate thing to sh- to share or suggest, but <laughs> you were I, going to go off into
2: like creepy clowns. No, 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 I, so no. like, I
0: love that you loved it because I'm like, no, it was like so this beautiful famous. porcelain clown. Like it was, oh. it was, it was a good thing. Like I felt, okay, okay. I felt I important like there in that moment yes, where. Yes. There was a lot of grief going on. Yeah. so awesome. comfort
2: items all around, stuffed animals, yeah. blanket, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And you can expect to, I don't think we've, I don't I haven't said the word regression yet, but you can expect regression when you go through a significant changes. You can accept, expect to see some regressive behaviors, whether that's like your three-year-old who just finally got to stop taking a pacifier now is really wanting their pacifier. And, you know, yeah. it's okay to probably give them back their pacifier yeah. and like meet them where they're at and not where they you're expecting them to be. So having those comfort items, you might even have some bedwetting or some, if you've just potty trained, you might experience then have some regression with potty training, um, things like that, or even like dropping off at school, they might start to have more attachment um, distress when you leave too. So yeah, those are some things. but those are comfort awesome. items.
0: That's very, very helpful all around. And um, I know you've already shared some books and some of yeah. your favorite resources, but any other um, books or resources yeah. that you want to share with us? I I love that invisible string idea. I think that's awesome. Yeah. The um, um, National Association
2: for Children's Grief, NACG, Um, I just got back from their conference and it was amazing. There were specialists from all over the country and they have a list serve of book resources and practitioners in your area. So if you are looking or curious to know like how to get support specifically in your area, you can look there. Um, One of my favorite authors is named Alan Woolfelt and he wrote this book called Finding the Words. And I recommend that to so many parents because of that re-grieving at each developmental stage concept. He has this book that is just broken down by topics of questions or conversations that kids might have. And then he has it broken down by developmental stage, like the appropriate answer for them and why why it's appropriate to say this and why, what to caution against saying. It's just really easy to use. It's not a front to back cover read. It's a like, look for what you're looking for kind of thing. Yeah. And then it helps you because if your children are like three and five, then when they're going to be seven and 10, like you can kind of anticipate what your questions or thoughts might be coming your way. So those Make are my notes. Okay. <laughs> that's yeah. Awesome.
1: I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. That's and- great. Thank you.
0: And Ashley, do we have to come to Hawaii if we want to work with you? <laughs> no, no.
2: Thanks to you know virtual world since COVID, I I do see clients virtually. Um, so I see adult clients for the advanced uh, for grief recovery method, which was which is an eight to ten week action oriented. Um, grief program. So it's education. it's it's very it's very personal to your experience. and I walk you through different methods. So it's for the people who like want to do something about their grief and they're done just feeling it. <laughs> they want to do something. So that's an action oriented step and program that I offer. I also offer a four session um, working with children and families um, with grief grief and bereavement support as well. and I can offer that virtually with my and we use my book as part of that as well. Um, or can use it. And so those are the two virtual and in-person services that I'm offering as soon as I go home.
1: Awesome. And then where can we connect with you? Where can we find you? Are you on
2: Instagram? Yeah, I am on Instagram. I have um, an Instagram account called the grieving well. The idea is that there's no well way to grieve, (laughs) but it is this space that I envisioned it being like a well, like a water well that people can come to and draw the nourishment and support that they need from it. They can pour their tears into it. It's this collective space that we all have our own individual well that we draw from, but there's also this collective well of grief that we can tap into and learn from each other in our grief because something that we're all will experience in our life. It's unique. It's universal, but it's also, you know, unique to our own life happenings. (laughs)
1: Hey, I found you and I followed.
0: Okay. Um, I love awesome. that. And your book is that available? Can you grab that on Amazon or yeah. Where? you okay. can get
2: that on Amazon and all the proceeds of that actually go to Let Grayson to support the programs um, in Hawaii supporting those families too? Awesome. Okay. Thank
0: you. So oh, gosh, that much. was awesome this chat. And so you guys helpful. doesn't Ashley's voice just sound like a warm hug, period. <laughs> like just listening to you talk makes me feel so comforted.
1: Um, yes you have a very calming oh. voice it's it's very nice
0: but if you were standing next to her in person it, it's it's just like a, she's just a hug she's a big <laughs> old, <laughs> fresh cup of coffee all I the things. oh
1: well it's been <laughs> so nice chatting compliment. with you. Guys. thank you
0: for having me
1: yes, yes so i'm gonna nice
0: miss you when you virtually i'm gonna miss you when you go back to hawaii however we're going to come and visit you we really are so when we
1: hit it big time on the podcast yes.
0: <laughs> I love it
1: you're our first stop
0: okay
2: thanks
1: good.
0: for ha- thanks for joining us today yeah God thank heart. you
1: so much for your time that was really special to have you on
2: thank you so yeah. much. you're welcome thanks for having me again I appreciate it it's good to chat chat with you Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. okay bye ladies bye Hi.